You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. As we turn our Bibles to John chapter 18. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra for leading us in worship. John 18, we have Jesus taking his 11 disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has betrayed him. And verse three tells us that a, a band, an unholy conglomerate of common enemies, but they have one central enemy together, Jesus has come. Uh, the priests, the Pharisees the, with lanterns and torturns, uh, torches and weapons. And we saw last time, verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have no fear in death because... Our Lord Jesus Christ drank the cup that you gave him for us and our salvation. Father, we desire to behold that this morning, that gospel truth, our Savior and Lord, through the preaching of your word and the Lord's table. But we need your spirit to attend to our worship this morning, as he already has. And we are trusting him for that. In Jesus' name, amen. This coming Wednesday, January the 24th, is the 59th anniversary of Sir Winston Churchill's death. The so-called indispensable man who, at the instrumental level, saved Western civilization from Hitler's Nazism. Charles Krauhammer wrote in his book, Things That Matter, these words concerning Churchill. Without Churchill, the world today would be unrecognizable, dark, impoverished, and tortured. Above all, victory required one man without whom the fight would have been lost at the beginning. It required Winston Churchill. But when he died, there was a sense of hopelessness that came on Western civilization. Just a few words from journalists at his death. Now Britain is no longer a great power. Another one writes, the day of giants is gone forever. Another wrote, we are looking at a past utterly irrecoverable. Churchill's lying in state took three days and three nights, 320,000 people filed past his casket in homage to Churchill. Many more would have shown up, but believe it or not, it was colder that day in London than it is here. It was below zero when those 320,000, or during that, those three days when those 320,000 filed past his his casket. Some 350 million people 
worldwide watched his funeral. More than viewed President Kennedy's funeral 15 months earlier. At his funeral, 112 countries were represented. Now why? Certainly gratitude. He played the central role in the Allied forces winning the battle over Nazi Germany. So honor, respect, gratitude, all of the above. But there was also a sense of despair and hopelessness. He is now dead. This ominous sentimentality reigned. This sense that Churchill was now gone. And all the glory, all the hopes, all the victories of the past were now in the past. That seems to be the sentiment of the disciples as Jesus has been arrested. Jesus had helped them and helped many, countless many, during his life. But now, it's apparent he is going to die. And so, he would be no good for them now. When, they, when he was arrested, Matthew tells us, and this was actually a prediction, a prophecy of Jesus to the disciples. Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, 56, all the disciples left him and fled. Why? For them, all hope was gone. All the disciples except Peter and an unnamed disciple that we believe to be the apostle John. And even with Peter, Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, 57, Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And get this, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Do you get that? Peter believed it was all over. He was going to see the end, the end of hope, the end of glory, the end, the death of his best friend. So Peter believes this is the end for Jesus. Now last time, we saw that kind of play out. We just read, when they came to arrest him, he pulled out his sword to cut off Malchus's ear. Peter had a sword, and Jesus, metaphorically, took a cup. And Jesus was able to accept this cup poured out by his father because he was in complete submission to his father. Peter's sword, though, reflects a man who at this present moment had his hopes set on the here and now, the temporal, this present world. And why do I say that? Well, John 18, 36 will tell us, Jesus will say, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Well, that's exactly what Peter was doing. He was fighting, reflecting the fact that his affections, his hopes were set on the here and now. That's kind of the backdrop as we come to our passage we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 27 this morning. Now, as we approach this text, we're going to see its structure is a bit confusing. So let me clarify that. 
First of all, Christ, Jesus, is going to be taken uh, to a man named Annas, the former high priest. And then John is going to direct our attention right after his encounter there with Annas to Peter and his first denial of Jesus. And then John will take us back to Jesus's encounter with Annas again. And then the passage will close with Peter's second and third denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would John structure it that way? It's not the easiest way to read it, but he certainly has an inspired purpose in structuring it that way. John is showing us that even in the most committed of men, and that's Peter, he is following Jesus to the end. Even in the most committed of Jesus' disciples, sin has abounded. And until you understand that sin has abounded, you will not celebrate that grace has much more abounded in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the first part of this passage. Jesus unjust trial. Look with me in verse 12. So the band of soldiers, now keep in mind, we said last time, there were up to a thousand men here, probably at least a minimum of 600. This band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now keep in mind, the powers here have seen Jesus' works. None of them could be discredited. They had heard Jesus' words, and it had not moved them. They had not beheld his glory, and therefore, it had hardened them. When you are confronted with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, and you do not respond in repentance and faith, you don't remain the same. You're hardened by it. This shows the hardness of the human heart that has rejected the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. But more importantly, we see here the amazing condescension and humility of the Son of God, who had all power and all authority to will his deliverance with one word. Matthew 28 or 26 tells us, Jesus in his account in Matthew, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at one once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, just think about this. A one legion is 6,000 angels. And he says he could appeal to the father for 12 legions. That's 72,000 angels he could have appealed to by just speaking the word. Now keep in mind, 1 Kings 19, one angel put to death 185,000 Assyrians. That's the authority the Son of God had. But he was willingly, he willingly allowed himself to be bound for us who are bound by sin, who are held captive by sin. Verse 13, first they led him to Annas, 
For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So let me kind of give us a, a broad sketch of these arrests. About 11 o'clock on Thursday night, scholars estimate 11 o'clock, the text doesn't give us that specifically, Jesus concludes his high priestly prayer. He leads his disciples into the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and John doesn't tell us this, but he began to go and pray. He tells his disciples to watch and pray. And then around midnight, which would have meant it is Good Friday, around midnight, the soldiers would have come to arrest Jesus, having been betrayed by Judas. Jesus will have to endure six trials before he goes to the cross. The first three by the Jews, the second three by the Romans. The first three would have been ecclesiastical trials and the second three would have been civic trials. Jesus is first taken to Annas and then he's taken to Caiaphas. And finally, he will be taken to the Sanhedrin, the entire Sanhedrin, where he will be condemned for blasphemy, punishable by death. But the Jews didn't have the right of capital punishment. We'll see that later in John 18. And so they, they send him to the Jews. They take him to the Jews, or I mean to the Romans, to be crucified. He will first will come before Pilate. Pilate will want nothing to do with it. And so Pilate will send him uh, to uh, Herod. And then Herod will take him back to Pilate. Now, John doesn't record those details. He assumes, because he was the last one to write his gospel, that we have this other information in the other gospels. Remember, these are all complementary gospels, a composite picture of all that happened. He doesn't include all of these details. His focus is on the fact that in spite of what appears to be a hopeless situation that's out of control, our Lord Jesus Christ is completely in control. John is emphasizing that the Son of God willingly lays down his life for us and our salvation. No one takes it from him. In fact, this first trial of six, where he goes before Annas, is not recorded in any of the other Gospels. So only John tells us that he goes before Annas. Evidently, in deference to his continuing influence, he was brought to Annas first. Now, who was Annas? Annas was the high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. But then he was deposed by the Romans. Uh, in fact, it was Pontius Pilate's predecessor who had deposed him because they didn't want any high priest of the Jews to grow in too much influence. Okay? But he had influence. In fact, many of the Jews believed he still should have been their high priest. He was still called their high priest in their eyes. 
In fact, he had so much influence that five of his sons would end up being high priest. One of his grandsons would be a high priest. And currently, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the high priest. Speaking of Caiaphas, verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, it's apparent that Caius, Caiaphas was the first individual who said that Jesus must die. Now, John, in recording those words, and we saw this all the way back in John 11, verses 50 and 51, these very words, Caiaphas said that this one man must die so that the nation might live. Because there was a, 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 just an outpouring of, of celebration of, of this, this Jesus. And, and he was fearful that the Jews were going to stamp it out and, and cause real issues with the Jewish people. So he said, better that he die so that all the people of Israel might live. Now, was Caiaphas holding to penal substitution? No. Uh, Caiaphas was speaking greater than he knew uh, in a fuller sense. Uh, Caiaphas was thinking politically. But John recognized the irony of his words because that's indeed why Jesus came. He came as the Lamb of God to die in our place so that we might live. And even this pagan high priest who was a puppet to the Romans, confessed that even though he did not know what he was saying. John recognized though that it would be through the cross that the believer's sin would be fully punished and yet fully pardoned that we might live. Well, that brings us to John directing our attention now to Peter. Uh, Peter's first unrighteous denial. We've seen this unjust trial begin, and now we see Peter's first unrighteous denial. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, we'll see that same language in John 20 at the resurrection. Another disciple. And we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that that other person at the tomb with Peter was John. So this another disciple is John. He just does not want any attention drawn to himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside of the door so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl, probably a teenage girl, certainly no one who had authority. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, of course I am, no. I am not. 
Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warning, warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. He's taking care of his physical needs while he's denying his Lord to a servant girl who had no authority uh, to do anything about what he would have said. Why would John include this detail about the charcoal fire, something that we all uh, envision as a beautiful thing today? It's because he was an eyewitness. Richard Bauckham teaches us that when they give these details that really don't add to the text, it's just driving home that John was an eyewitness of these things. Now, we've already seen. Matthew has told us that Peter was following Jesus, but he was following him at a distance. Matthew 26, verse 58. And so a kind of love, unhealthy love, not a robust love, but a love nonetheless tethered Peter to his Lord, okay? So he didn't run and hide like the other disciples. But the fear of man made him ashamed to completely identify with him. At every moment of our lives, what we love and esteem most will control our actions. So he had a love for Jesus, but he had a greater love, self-preservation. He didn't want to be identified with with Jesus, the fear of man was his prevailing fuel. What we fear and love most controls everything we say and do and think, everything that motivates us at every moment of our lives. The fear of man has taken a greater hold on Peter than his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every compromise in your life at that moment, you are loving and esteeming something more than our Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle writes, as a result, he chose a middle course. A middle course. He followed him, but he followed him at a distance. Now, there's no doubt that Peter is a believer. We saw as early in, as John chapter 6, where Jesus says, or John writes, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He was speaking hard things. And Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a believer, and John is showing us even what a committed believer can compromise when Jesus and love for him and fear of him is not his central affection. And so here was the issue. Peter was walking in self-dependence. He was not walking in dependence of our Lord. And as a result, he was prayerless. 
Now, where do I get that? Well, again, Matthew's account tells us that in this garden before the arrest, Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He had told them to, to watch and pray. As he went and prayed, he came back to them and, and they were sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? He directs his attention to Peter there. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter is being warned here. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, and again he came back, and he found them sleeping. So the disciples were clearly physically sleepy, but I think Matthew is indicating here that that's a metaphor for spiritual sleepiness as evidenced by their prayerlessness. Prayerlessness was the symptom of their spiritual dullness and their spiritual sleepiness. It's always the case. Self-sufficiency and a lack of desperate faith and trust in Christ's sufficiency. Despite that, Mark tells us, sorry about that. Mark tells us that Peter had a favorable disposition of himself as compared to the other disciples. And by the way, when there is sin in your life and you're a believer, the Lord loves you so much, he will, he will ensure that sin will get exposed. And here's what Mark's account tells us. Peter says to Jesus, after Jesus said, you're all going to flee. He said, even though all fall away, I will not. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. This is a prayerless, self-sufficient man making a boast to Jesus. In John's account, we read this in John 13, same time. Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Again, the Lord loves us so much, he is always placing us in circumstances and in relationships to expose our indwelling sin. And in this particular case, his indwelling sin was a lack of dependency on the Lord as evidenced by his prayerlessness, his sleepiness of soul, and his pride. He believed he was better than the other disciples. In addition, how many times did Jesus told them that he had to be raised up, he had to be crucified, but he would be raised on the third day? Peter wasn't trusting in that. Peter wasn't believing in that. And I believe that's all of those reasons are the reason why Peter followed him, but he followed him from a distance. How many of us, that describes us, aren't we often like that? We follow Jesus, but we follow him from a distance. 
He's too compelling to walk away from. Okay? But you're not completely sure he's all that he claimed to be. That he's been raised and that he has ascended to the Father and he rules and reigns with all authority. Why is G, uh, John giving us this detail about Peter? He is showing us why we need a savior. That's why. That brings us to the third scene. This unjust trial continues. Jesus' unjust trial, starting in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples. So again, John is going in and out. He started with Jesus and Annas, and, and then he goes to Peter, and now he comes back. There's a reason for that. He's a masterful writer. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. Literally, I have, I have not spoken in secret. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Of course, he spoke to the disciples privately, but he never said anything in private that he did not say publicly. Now, Jesus' words echo here one of the most Trinitarian passages in the Old Testament. Do you realize God did not become a trinity uh, at the birth of Jesus? He is eternally the triune God. And in Isaiah 48, this is what Jesus is echoing, and I believe intentionally so. Hear the words of this figure, this person, from Isaiah 48, 16. Draw near to me. Draw near to me. Hear this. Now you may think that that is Yahweh, and it is, but he's also distinct from who we know as God, the Father. Hear this from the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. Same language that Jesus is saying here. From the time it came to be, I have been here. This is an eternal figure, get this. And now the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim, has sent me. So he's distinct from Yahweh Elohim, and yet he's eternal. The Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Do you get that? This is a person speaking who's distinct from Yahweh Elohim, and he's distinct from the spirit, and yet there's this inseparable operation. The Father and the Spirit has sent him, and he has not spoken in secret. The ones they claimed to worship was being rejected by their unjust trial. Verse 21. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now this is equivalent to our fifth amendment that protects us against self-incrimination. That's essentially what he's doing here. And this sends them over the edge. Verse 22. 
When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Now it's interesting in Malachi 5, or Micah 5, it speaks about the, the ungodly Jews who would strike the judge. Well, <laughs> they're striking the judge, though he appears to be the one who's under judgment. They strike him. And he says, is this how you answer the high priest? By the way, he struck the true high priest. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Oh, the depths that are the Son of God condescended for us in our salvation. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So at this point, Annas' only response, they don't know how to even debate with this man who has infinite wisdom, is to send him still bound to Caiaphas. Before Jesus can be brought to Pilate, in other words, uh, charges must be confirmed by the true high priest which is Caiaphas. This is all that John records of the Jewish trial. As I said, if you, if you piece together all the other gospels, there's three parts to it. He goes to Annas, to Caiaphas, and then to the Sanhedrin. This is all that John records of this Jewish trial. He alludes to Caiaphas, but he doesn't tell us about the trial. They'll bring in false witnesses to indict him. But it's sufficient to drive home that this hearing was illegal and it was unjust. For one, he was arrested on trumped up charges by the witness of an accomplice who had been bribed. Secondly, it was taking place at night and capital uh, cases were never brought at night, but they were doing it at night to avoid the throngs of people who adored the Lord Jesus Christ. This trial was ultimately no trial at all. It was murder. It was murder. And that brings us to the final part of this passage. Again, John has us going from Jesus to Peter, back to Jesus, back to Peter. Why? Sin is abounding, but grace is much more abounding before our very eyes. Peter's unrighteous second and third denials. Verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. I think John might be indicating there that he is just self-preserving is what he's doing. He's self-preserving. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Verse 27, Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Matthew tells us he denied with curses, with curses. What's in the heart will come out when the Lord tests you. He denied him. Again, Peter had an, a loose outward commitment to Jesus like many American believers 
without inner dependency as evidenced by his shoddy prayer life. And that will always get exposed every day of your life. But Jesus, by predicting his denials, and then upon his three denials, the rooster crowing is signaling something very important. He may be bound. He may look like he has lost all control, but he is still very much in control. You know, Peter had seen Jesus demonstrate his authority and his control, his sovereignty for three years. But now Peter certainly was questioning that. It appeared that Jesus was no longer in control. And then the rooster crowed. And then the rooster crowed. Jesus had not lost control. Jesus had predicted that very thing to Peter. But as we close and as we come to the table, let me share one more thing. John doesn't include this because it's not his burden. But I would be remiss not to include it here as we come to the table. Peter had been told that by Jesus. You're going to deny me three times. And then the rooster's going to crow. But in Luke's account, we're told something else Jesus told Peter in that same conversation. In Luke Chapter 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. That word for fail is where we get the word eclipse. That your faith will not be eclipsed. And when, not if. Why is it when? Because Jesus is praying for him. And when you have turned again. He's telling him this before he even denies him. Strengthen your brothers. We'll see in time in John 21 that Peter's threefold denial will be followed up by the resurrected Christ threefold restoration of Peter. No wonder Peter would write, as we read this morning in our scripture reading, of the precious blood of Christ. Peter recognized, writing that, it would be that cross that he was trying to protect Jesus from that would be the ground of his restoration. He would go on and write in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. Amen. What a savior we have. In a survey of 3,000 British teens in 2008, 20% of them thought that Winston Churchill to be a fictional character. Because he had been dead for decades at that point, he seemed like a myth to many. If Jesus had stayed dead, 
That's how he would be for us today. But he didn't. He went to the cross. He paid sin's penalty for us so that we might be pardoned and God raised him from the dead. And that's why we celebrate the table. That's why we have celebrated this Christ, not in hopelessness, looking back on a great figure like they did at Winston Churchill's funeral. We celebrate him regularly at the table and in corporate worship. The table reminds us that yes, Jesus is our help in ages past, but he is our very present help in our very present redeemer today. He saved us from the penalty of our sin and he is saving us now from the power of sins like our very real tendency like Peter to deny him, to deny him. And he's come to deliver us from that. Indeed, the crowing of the rooster signaled betrayal. But you know what the rooster crow also signals? The dawning of a new day. A day that would culminate in a resurrection, but a day that would begin with crucifixion for us as he takes the judgment we deserve. We who are a whole lot more like Peter than we are Jesus. And so that's what we're thinking about and meditating upon as we come to the table. For those of you who are visiting with us, we, we invite you to the table upon a couple of conditions. You've been born again, as we read this morning in 1 Peter, born again by the imperishable and enduring word of God. You also are a member, baptized member, and like stand of a church of, uh, that believes like we do. And, and if that is you, we, we invite you here this morning to the table to partake as we are encountered by the very real and living and present Christ through the elements and as we remember what he has done for us to deliver us from our Peter-like characters. Let's bow our heads. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.